What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets in the car, while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. You know that old adage, luck is when preparation meets opportunity? Well, I think that philosophy is the key to the Levi's story. That and a good old-fashioned patent. is Bizography, the show where we dive into the strange but true stories of iconic companies. Whether they're a current bright star, in the midst of a massive dumpster fire, or settling into the dust heap of history, they all have a past worth knowing. I'm Dana Barrett. I'm a former tech executive, an entrepreneur, and a TV and radio host. And over the course of my career, I've interviewed thousands of business leaders and reported on the bright beginnings and massive flameouts of the brands we know and love. Some of their stories are unexpected, some are infuriating, and some make you think, hey, maybe I could do that. From a clothing perspective, there may not be a brand as iconic as Levi's, no matter how hard others try. Like the jeans, the brand feels almost effortless. Kind of like my co-host and producer, Nick Mead. Aw, Dana. Wait, wait, wait. Do you mean I'm effortlessly iconic or iconically effortless? Hmm, good question. Um, We'll go with the first. I think we'll go with the first. (laughs) You are right, though, right? When you think jeans, you think of the little little red Batwing logo with Levi's across it, right? Yeah. Uh, I know for me, Levi's growing up were kind of two things. They were like a staple, like you had to have Levi's, but they were also utterly cool. You know, there were some staples that you had to have growing up, like your lunchbox or whatever, that maybe weren't as cool, but Levi's were always cool. Now, mind you, I did grow up in the 70s and 80s, and by the 80s, the designer jean trend was in full swing. And so I did buy into that whole thing, but really, in college... For men and women, a worn-in pair of Levi's was always cool. And to tell the truth, one of the biggest fights I ever got into, maybe in my entire life, was with my college roommate, and it was over a pair of Levi's. Oh, she trying to take them from you or something? Mm, it's kind of the opposite. Oh, Dana, Dana, Dana. It's a long story. We'll save that. <laughs> we'll save that one for a whole other podcast. We'll start a podcast called My Roommate Stories. Oh, no. And uh, yeah, um, but if you had to guess the backstory of Levi's, Nick or you think you already know it, what would you assume the story is? Right. So I would assume that back before they even had those moving pictures they had, um, some guy named Levi or Strauss, Levi Strauss, maybe two guys, right, got together and, and made pants for people that needed strong pants. That would be my assumption, right? Well, some of that is... Right, but some of it not quite exactly right. So let's go back to the very beginning. 
Once upon a time, there was a guy named Levi Strauss. Just one guy. Okay, one guy. All Levi right. Strauss. <laughs> uh, he was born in 1829 in Buttenheim, Bavaria, on February 26th. And he was uh, one of a big family, three older brothers, three older sisters. And fast forward to 1846, shortly after their father died, Levi and his sisters emigrated to New York City. Now, their two older brothers had already gone. They already lived there. And they had started a dry goods business called J. Strauss Brother and Company. And when Levi got there, he started to learn the business. He was there for, you know, several years. And then in 1853, while the California gold rush was in full swing, he decided to head out to San Francisco to start up a wholesale dry goods business as sort of the West Coast representative of the business the family already had going in New York. So Levi goes out there, and eventually he renames his company Levi Strauss and Company, which honestly was a better name than J. Strauss Brother and Company. That's yeah, a lot. Rolls off the tongue a little easier. Yeah, Levi Strauss and Company. So he's out there doing his thing. He's got his dry goods wholesale business. He's selling, you know, we don't call stores that anymore, really. But if it is exactly what it sounds like. A business that sold dry stuff, you know, not produce, but like flour and fabric and all kinds of stuff. Sort of a general store, if you will. I feel like you can picture it almost like Little House on the Prairie style, right. you know? <laughs> um, but that's exactly what Levi Strauss and Company was. So on this business goes, and it wasn't until 20 years later that blue jeans were born. 20 years. So he was a businessman running Levi Strauss and Co. for two decades before Levi's, as we know them, even came into existence. Right. Okay. But fun fact and a major important part of the story that I think a lot of people don't know that the jeans themselves weren't invented by Levi. Oh. So, 2 years after Levi was born, uh in Bavaria, a man named Jacob Davis was born not too far away in Latvia. He too emigrated to the US in the 1840s and he too headed out to San Francisco during the 1850s. But after a stint there, Jacob actually ended up in Reno, Nevada, where he set up shop as a tailor. He was buying fabric, as it turned out, from Levi Strauss because that was just the closest and best place to get what he needed. In 1870, so the story goes, a woman came to Jacob for a pair of cheap pants for her large husband who had the habit of going through pants rather quickly. Having found that thread alone did not always adequately hold the pockets onto work pants, Jacob decided to try out rivets because they'd worked pretty well on horse blankets in the huh. past. Yeah. Okay, that's actually... Okay, so the thread wasn't enough. Let's bring metal into the equation. Yeah, I let's just never have thought of that. rivet these things together. <laughs> So by 1871, Jacob Davis was routinely using rivets on the pants he made. First, he was using it on cotton duck, and then soon after, he started using it on denim, which already existed. And then word sort of spread because these pants were lasting longer than others, and so they started to become popular with the laborers along the railroad there. It wasn't too long before Jacob realized he was having trouble keeping up with demand, which was great, but what wasn't so great about it was that he was beginning to be imitated by other tailors, and he got concerned. So in 1872, Jacob wrote a letter to Levi Strauss, the owner of that dry goods store in San Francisco where he bought his fabric, and he asked Levi Strauss to partner with him. He explained that he wanted to patent this new idea because he was afraid of the competition. He said in the letter, quote, my neighbors are getting jealous of these successes, and unless I secure it by patent papers, it will soon become to be a general thing. Everybody will make them up, and there will be no money in it. Unquote. And the reason he needed help, he says in the letter, quote, I am so situated with a large family that I cannot do anything with it at present. Therefore, as I have said, if you wish to take out the papers, please go to Dewey and Company of the Centrific Press and have the papers made out in my name for 17 years, and they will send them up to me for signature, unquote. So I read it that way because that's exactly how it is in the letter itself with his you know, accent. He didn't have English as a native language. And of course, they didn't have schools uh, the way we do now. But the thing is, he didn't trust his neighbors because they were jealous. <laughs> but he did trust this merchant in another city, Levi Strauss. So much, in fact, that he sent, along with that very first letter, two examples of the pants themselves and the plans that he wanted to have patented. And he also sent along his share of the money to get the patent. 
Wow. I can only imagine, though, that they had to at least have a little bit of knowledge of each other's background, which, come on, you both were born not that far across the other side of the world, near each other. There's a little bit of fate involved here. But yeah, as long as you've been doing business with somebody, you, you kind of earn that trust, right? And they were also, I don't know if this is relevant or not, but they were also both Jewish. So there may have been some, you know, community sense there that they had each other's back. Um, and in fact, Jacob did have a large family, by the way. He had eight kids. And while he didn't seem to have an issue with his invention of these riveted pants not taking his name, his children, as a fun little side note, did start a clothing business called Ben Davis Clothing, and that exists to this very day. In fact, you can see the entire text from that letter that I was just reading on the Ben Davis Clothing website. And if you want to check it out, we've got a link to it on our website at bizography.show. That's what we call a shameless self-plug right there. (laughs) So, Levi Strauss could have, literally could have just stolen the idea and run with it. He had everything he needed. He had the papers, he had the pants, but he didn't. He was the right guy to trust. And in 1873, blue jeans as we know them today were born. The patent was granted to Jacob Davis and Levi Strauss and Company on May 20th of that year. But why are they blue? And if you were coming up with a new style of pants today... Would you even think of getting a patent for it? We'll get into the blue color and the history of patents right after this. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. All right, so let's talk patents. According to upcouncil.com, the concept of the patent dates back to 600 BC. The first patent was for some kind of, quote, newfangled loaf of bread, unquote. And as far back as 500 BC, chefs in Sybaris had the option to have up to a year of profit on a unique dish they created. And these are kind of thought to be the first known references to intellectual property protection. A couple hundred years later, Vitruvius, who was a judge in ancient Alexandria, tried a couple of poets and found them guilty of stealing the material of other poets, essentially plagiarizing. After that, Romans debated different types of ownership for different kinds of intellectual property, but they didn't actually create laws or patents to govern the matter. But it was part of what was beginning to happen. And it wasn't until the guild system, which was in the Middle Ages, that the protection of actual intellectual property started to take hold. So patents weren't really used yet then either, but the guilds did very heavily protect uh, the different techniques they had for their chosen crafts. And they were very secretive and prevented as much as they could that information from getting out to the public. 
Fast forward to the Venetian Act of 1474. I feel very intellectual just saying that. (laughs) The Venetian Act was the first known sort of codified patent system in Europe. Patents were already now in existence, but they were sort of different from place to place, and there were no real set of standards. This act in 1474 began to streamline this process and make it simpler so that anyone could apply for a patent, and they knew how to categorize what they were asking for, and they knew how to defend their patent. Right. So it kind of gave a system as to this is what I'm doing, this is how I'm doing it, versus like, haha, well, this isn't exactly the same. So, okay. Right. So this was sort of the first, you know, the first real go okay. at putting this into law. So that stood for a long time, a couple hundred years. Wow. It was almost 200 years later, 1620s, when the British Statute of Monopolies came to be. James I made a royal proclamation in 1624 that moved this even further. And if you think about it, what, what they added here essentially was that you had this patent that had to be now for an original invention, and it had to be for a specific time period. So that wasn't the case before. You sort of had a patent and it was yours. And it wasn't clear that it really had to be an original invention. Like maybe people were just sort of patenting regular stuff. Like here's a coffee cup. I'm going to patent it. (sighs) Yeah. So now they said, no, 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 you can't really do this. (laughs) And the reason that this happened is because Parliament wanted to prevent the monarch from just giving patents to anybody he liked. Oh, that's a good point. You have to have real causation. You can't just have the king like you. Exactly. And now it's yours. And that sort of is the basis of really a lot of what has happened with patents ever since. Now, in the U.S., we had patents in a very unorganized way in the early days of the country. But in 1790, the first patent act of the U.S. uh, became law. And that, again, also is sort of very similar to how things uh, go even now. In modern times, there are all different kinds of patents. Some are really long in terms of number of years. Some are really short. uh, And it it really just depends. There's a lot of different categories now, and it's a fairly complex system. But getting back to our story with Levi Strauss and uh, Jacob and the Pants. I feel like that should be the title. (laughs) Jacob and the Pants. Jacob and the Pants. Um, I would not have thought that patents were common in the clothing industry or in the fashion world. It just doesn't seem intuitive to me. Right. Yeah. You know, a shoe is a shoe. Pants is pants. Shirt is a shirt. Right. I mean, pants is pants is pants, (laughs) you would think. But it turns out that patents are granted in the fashion world far more than I certainly knew. After doing just a little bit of research, I found some interesting examples. Spanx has more than a dozen patents. Hmm. Victoria's Secret has over 80, although not all of those are for clothing. But still, okay, over 80? Wait for it. All right. Dior has over 200, and Nike, over 8,000 different patents. What? Yeah. Really? Yep. Wow. Those must be incredibly nuanced. Like the little nitty-gritty details of the groove and the sole of a shoe, right? Right. I mean, the patents can be anything from the the lace, a special new kind of shoelace, or a sole of the shoe, or... A, yeah. Wow. So... That's nuts. Yeah, it's crazy. The details. And of course, you know, Nike does make a ton of different kinds of products across a whole bunch of different kinds of sports. So Valid. In any case, over 8,000 patents for (sighs) Nike. And that was just on a quick search on the patent website. (laughs) Patents, of course, have a huge advantage that come with them, which is why people go after them. And that is they give you a competitive advantage. You get a patent, you get to produce and make your thing solely and exclusively, and no one else can make it for X number of years. So getting back to Levi's, that's exactly what happened for Levi's. When you think of blue jeans today, you think Levi's. It's because they had a massive head start on not only just blue jeans, but blue jeans that held together longer than any others with those rivets. Yeah, the rivets are important, but the blue, right, is also important because you just said it, blue jeans. We usually say blue jeans. But do you know why they're blue, Dana? I mean, I really don't. I feel like I I have this vague memory. In one of my many midlife crises, I went back to design school <laughs> and I had this teacher in fabrics. I went for interior design. So she was like a fabrics specialist who talked about the color indigo. And I sort of vaguely remember something about jeans as it related to that. But no, I guess I would just assume because it's like prettier than the beige. <laughs> so, right, they use the beige like the duck 
right? It's kind of a, a, a brownish color. And they also happen to use indigo because, well, <clears throat> Levi Strauss, being a dry goods owner, just had some on hand when they were working on some of the first pairs of pants. So they figured brown hides stains, working man, right? Blue also do a good job of hiding stains. That was the initial reasoning behind the indigo. But as they started getting into making it more, all of a sudden they realized that the indigo dye did a little bit something different with the actual fabric than the brown dye. So quick, quick and easy dye lesson. Most dyes, when you dye something, it goes all the way through the fabric, right? The whole, the whole strand, so to speak, becomes that color. Indigo didn't do that. Indigo just attached to the outside threads of the denim. It didn't get all the way through. The benefit of this is that as you wash it, what happens to your blue jeans after you wash them two or three times? They get soft, right? They get that broken in feeling and people loved it. Levi Strauss didn't really notice. Nobody else noticed. It's just all of a sudden, all the brown pants are still up, but these blue ones are flying off the shelves. That's why blue became the de facto color for jeans. So that must be what I remember, something about the indigo, the quality of indigo itself as a natural material had that property. So I, yeah, okay. It was in my brain somewhere. Yeah, you were right. You weren't far off. Ish. I thought that was pretty interesting. And nowadays, right, we still get that feeling, right, when you wear your, your jeans, and we, but they don't use normal in, natural indigo anymore. What? It's way too rare, way too many blue jeans out there. They use synthetic dye. Another quick thing that I found was interesting is just like anything else you wore that's sewn together, there's kind of an up and down and a left and right thread. Only the up and down threads on your blue jeans are dyed with this th synthetic dye. It allows those left and right threads to wear and tear in the washing machine to give them that soft, worn in, broken in feeling. So some creative somebody somewhere <laughs> figured out how to imitate real indigo with, with a whole other process. Yeah, crazy, because that's the key to blue jeans, is the fact that you can wear them and they feel like your jeans. That's the whole point. Another interesting thing that I just want to share, you know that little pocket in the side that really isn't good for anything? Yeah, that little tiny one. I think women's jeans one. has them too, right? Like the little dumb pocket that you're like, oh, I can fit a quarter. Hooray! You know why those were initially put into the jeans back in the day? I do not. Well, they didn't have watches like we do on our wrists, and they definitely didn't have smartphones. They had pocket watches. But if you're a laboring man out in the yard, you put it in your normal pocket with your hammer and your nails and whatever go else in there, their watches would get scratched up and broken. People didn't like it. Common sense, hey, we'll just put a little tiny pocket here for just your watch so your watch didn't get messed up. So watch. what's supposed to go in there is your pocket watch. The watch pocket. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. All right. Who knew? Look at us learning. Yeah. But let's get back to our heroes. So Levi Strauss and Jacob Davis, they are together now. They've gotten this patent. It's 1873. And by the way, this is also the year that Davis adds that now famous double orange threading, that stitch on the pockets to distinguish their jeans from others. Because other companies were making... Mm jeans and trying to compete. So essentially, through the rest of the century, the business grew slow and steady. And Levi continued to grow his business interests on the whole. Here's just a couple little fun facts from the time. So Levi and a couple of associates purchased the Mission and Pacific Woolen Mills. Okay, so, so he wanted to get his hands on the product itself, right? He liked getting it. He was in the fabric business huh. now, so he wanted to get further into it. He was also a director of the Nevada Bank, uh, the Liverpool, London, and Globe Insurance Company, and the San Francisco Gas and Electric Company. He was everywhere. He was essentially just becoming a predominant businessman in San Francisco. <laughs> and maybe before his time in the uh, Diversify Your Holdings. Right. Right? right. <laughs> well, he's, got, he's got pants. He's got a bank. He's got insurance. I like this. A little of everything. Like he also became a charter member and treasurer of the San Francisco Board of Trade. That was in 1877. <laughs> In 1886, as the brand Levi Strauss and Company, the jeans, are continuing, they introduced that two-horse trademark, which depicts two horses mm. attempting to pull apart a pair of Levi's pants. And this was to symbolize the strength of the clothing. Now, fun fact, they weren't called jeans back then. They were called waist overalls. What? Because think about it. The working men were wearing overalls, and this was essentially overalls with the top part cut off. <laughs> waist overalls. They still went over everything, but only up to your waist. <laughs> That's so awkward to think of that nowadays. Right. Kids, time to get dressed. Put on your waist overalls. 
I'm going to do that the next time I get kid, the kids ready for school, just to see the look on his face. My what? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, okay, so we progressed through the 1880s into 1890. That's the year that they created this idea of sizing their pants as they were before they were shrunk. So they were like this extra large sort of size. Then you washed them and they shrunk down. But the sizing had to do with how big they were ahead of time. That was called the double X waist overall. And I believe that sizing, I believe that still continues to this day on a couple of the lines of Levi's. Cool. Anyway, the first time they did that, it was on lot number 501. Ring a bell? Uh, yeah. Isn't that like Levi's most popular, like, style yeah. of their jeans is that's, the 501s? That's the 501s. Wow. Yeah. So that started all the way back in 1890. <sighs> In 1897, Levi Strauss provided the funds for 28 scholarships at Berkeley, all of which are still in place today. Oh, I just want to golf clap for that. Good job. How cool is that? He was a major philanthropist. Uh, in addition to those scholarships, he was also a contributor to the Pacific Hebrew Orphan Asylum and Home, the Eureka Benevolent Society, and the Hebrew Board of Relief. So he believed in giving back, and he made sure that he did that. He passed away... Uh, in 1902, and he did not ever have any kids. So he left his business to his nephews. His estate on the whole amounted to $6 million at the time, and it was left to his four nephews and some other family members. And a couple donations were also made to local funds and associations. All right, so I do have to say, though, when I saw these on the notes, I had to do a little bit of research. I looked it up. Take a guess, Dana. How much do you think in, like, 2019 dollars, right, modern money, how much is $6 million in 1902 worth? Um, I'm just going to guess here. Okay. 1.5 billion? Oh, not quite as much. 179 million dollars. Wow. Almost 180 million in I purposely, 1902. I purposely tried to guess big just because right. I knew it was big, but obviously, you know, I'm not a mathlete. I went a little too far. But yeah, 180 million dollars wow. to his nephews. Thanks, so, uncle. Yeah, he essentially made $180 million on Levi's. That's insane. The equivalent of. In what, 20-something years, right? Because it was 73 when they incorporated. Yeah. So it was, wow. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. Here's another little fun fact um, before we let Levi rest in peace. He never actually wore the jeans himself because they were for laborers and he was a businessman. Uh, All right. So that's, you know, a little bit. And I wouldn't say a negative mark against the man. He had a status he had to uphold. It was the 1800s. <laughs> it's just the times. It yeah. wasn't a, It wasn't him being a snob. It's just the way it was. People would have looked funny at him right. if he had worn them. Uh, now, Jacob Davis outlived Levi Strauss, but not by too much. He passed away six years later in 1908 in San Francisco. Of course, he had been there in San Francisco all of those years after that partnership began working in the Levi's manufacturing plant. Wow. Yeah. But here's the thing. While Levi's were a staple for working men by that time, they were by no means iconic for the rest of the world. So how do we go from <laughs> waist overalls for the working man to this iconic, like, fashion symbol that is jeans today? Well, there's a story there, and we'll talk about it next. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your 
your perfect home sweet home. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. So how do pants worn by working men in the early 1900s become everybody pants? In part, it has to do with the kind of company that Levi Strauss was and the fact that they were able to persevere through history, basically, through all kinds of good and bad times. And I feel like we need to talk about that before we can really talk about how they became trendy. Right, because the jeans probably on their own aren't going to do it. You're going to have to have a good company making them to keep them alive long enough to get popular, right? Yeah, and they had to be well-made, right? You couldn't be... I mean, when you think about how products are made today, where everything is about doing it as cheaply as you can and who cares if it falls apart in two seconds. I mean, that was sort of the antithesis of what Levi Strauss was about. The rivets on the jeans and the way they made the pants was to make them last. I mean, that's who they were, both from a company standpoint and a product standpoint. But Levi Strauss and company, I think, found a lot of strength in being a family business. That's who they were. Remember, it started long before the jeans with Levi's brothers. And later, he brought his own brother-in-law, David Stern, into the company. Now, Stern uh, came into the company sort of in the, you know, 1870s, but he passed away pretty young. So he was only in the company for a short period of time, passed away in 1875. But he had four sons who, uh, when they got old enough, all got involved in the business. And ultimately, they are the ones that inherited it from Levi Strauss when he passed away. So Jacob Stern, the oldest of the four nephews, because of course, Levi Strauss didn't have kids. Right. So that was the, the deal. Never married, didn't have kids. Wow. Man focused on his work. Well, Maybe. But you know, when a man didn't get married, I'm not saying, I'm just saying. You never know, right? When a man didn't get married back in the day. It was the 1800s. You never know. Yeah. Right. In any case, he didn't have kids. He'd never married. And so, but he was a, he was a family man and he loved his brother's kids. And so the four nephews are the ones who inherited. And again, Jacob, who was the oldest, ultimately became president of the company after Levi Strauss. And then in 1919, Jacob brought his son-in-law, Walter Haas, on board after Walter returned from fighting in World War One. So this was just constantly... Now, remember, this women weren't really in business at the time. Right. So these were brothers, nephews, sons, son-in-laws that were being brought in generation after generation. And of course, we're fast-forwarding through through time a little bit here. But Walter Haas became president of the company in 1928. So he worked there from 1919 and worked his way up. He didn't just get handed the presidency. Mm -hmm. But in 1928, he became president of the company and he held that job until 1955. So Walter Haas Sr. is really the one who is credited with a lot of the success and survival of the company. I mean, think about it. He took the company through World War II. And that was a tough time, obviously, economically, and, uh, you know, also through the Great Depression. So he, he weathered some major storms as the president of that company. After his tenure as president, he stayed on board and served as chairman until 1970. And then he remained active even after that until he died in 1979. So this was a man who committed his life. Wow. And that's the trend, right? All the way back from Levi, it seems like all of these folks involved are, this is, I, I stick to it literally to death. Right. And some of the episodes we've talked about on bizography in the past where founders died young or they didn't really um, turn things over to family members or really put in writing the way they wanted their businesses to go beyond them, how they wanted succession to happen and all of that. Those are the ones that sort of found themselves on the struggle bus to Doomtown, like Wells Fargo and Sears. But the ones that were either writing it down or, or keeping careful watch had different outcomes. And You know, this company, I think, because it was so family-oriented, you know, think about how people honor their grandparents and their great-grandparents, and they talk about what the values were. And if that was constantly there in the company, at the board meetings and at the executive-level meetings, it stays embedded. And I think that's, you know, a lot of what is happening throughout the history of Levi's, because these men honored their great-uncle, their great-great-uncle, their father, their brother-in-law, you know, all of that. Right. It's much different. It's more than just 
a company to them. It's yeah. their family's legacy. Yeah, absolutely. So Haas and his business partner and brother-in-law, Daniel E. Koshlin Sr., also widely credited with the global popularization of the Levi's brand. Of course, this is much, much later. They also got credit sort of for leading the company through the Great Depression. So this is, again, Haas and this guy Koshland, and also through racial integration at their factories. And and literally, the family is still involved to this day. I think it's the great-great-grand-nephew, <laughs> Peter Haas Jr., who is still on the board. It's amazing that the family's that involved. But we did say we were going to get to about how the genes got so popular. So which of these guys involved in the family was the marketing genius that made it happen, Dana? Which one was it? Was it Walter Haas Sr.? All right, fair question. I am not sure that Haas Sr. was a marketing genius per se. I mean, he probably had some savvy in that arena, but those times were different. It wasn't about viral videos, of course, back then, right? <laughs> um, or, you know, Instagram influencers. And so um, I think his real strength was being savvy enough to manage the company's growth, both through good times and bad. And unlike some other companies we've talked about on the show, he retained not only the family tradition, but company values, even through those most difficult times. We'll get to that part, those company values, because I think it's important in a minute, but I don't want to keep you waiting anymore on the popularity piece. How did everybody end up in blue jeans? Yeah, let's get to that. So on our timeline, we were about kind of up to the early 1900s. And in that era, the company was making these working man's jeans and selling them more and more to, you know, working Western men, cowboys, railroad workers, lumberjacks. In the 1920s, you know, because the, the pants sort of morphed over time. And mm-hmm. in the 1920s, the design of the jeans started to look a lot closer to how they look now. If you go back and sort of look at the pictures, you recognize, oh, that's really the, the jean. But really, they were still just being sold to those those particular uh, men for those particular reasons. I, I suspect, and I don't really know this, but I suspect it's sort of like they got home, took a shower, and put on other pants. You know what I right. mean? Right. It was, it was the work pant. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, it was like the uniform sort of thing, yeah. right? But it was in the 1930s that jeans started to appear in the eastern United States. And the legend has it that they were sort of brought home by vacationing Easterners who had gone out west and were impressed by the pants and how sturdy they were. Because, of course, the clothes they had didn't hold up if they were out gardening or going to the factory jobs that they had or whatever else. Interesting. I guess that would be normal, right? You go somewhere and it's like someone talks to about a garment of clothing. You're like, wow, that's amazing. Right. going to get me one and I'm going to take it home. Right. I think, I mean, look, people still do that to this day. Yeah. And that's how you see a lot of fa- a fashion trends starting. They go somewhere and they bring something back. I mean, you see prints of fabric prints coming from all over the world, right? In any case, that is sort of the legend. I think there were probably multiple things happening around the same time that brought the jeans east. And if we look back again at some of our other uh, episodes about things that were happening in those eras, you know, trains were moving product around. Mm -hmm. I mean, all of those things were sort of happening at that time. But from a style standpoint, that's the story. In the 19, early 1930s, as those people those people started wearing jeans, it was primarily men, to be fair, yeah. wearing these pants. Because women weren't wearing pants really much at all. And if they were, they weren't jeans. Right, because they were workers' pants made for the men laborers. Right, and that makes sense. women didn't work in those. Some women worked, but it wasn't commonplace for women Railroad to be working. Workers. And they, right, and they weren't working at the same kinds of jobs, right. generally speaking. And so in 1930. I actually could not believe this when I found it out through our research. The first ever line of jeans for women was released by Levi Strauss in 1934. I would have assumed that that didn't happen until the 50s. I would think it would be almost like a more of a fashion statement thing. And in the 30s, that was right after the whole flapper movement, right? When women were just finally getting out of all dresses and skirts all the time. Right, so. and I don't think they were really a fashion thing for women at that time. It right. was more like a gardening thing or That's like a, awesome. if you had work to do as a woman, you could wear these pants too. <laughs> and I think it wasn't really meant for them to wear. You didn't see them in the 30s walking around on the streets in jeans. Right. But, you know, it was actually sort of a, a statement coming from Levi's about women at the time. And they were, you know, we had 501s that already yeah. uh, were in the history. The first ladies' blue jeans, they were literally called ladies' blue jeans. They uh, were lot 701. So they were the 701s. What are the odds? And a little fun fact, I think they just re-released 701s recently as like a historical oh, reference. awesome. Fun fact here oh, oh. on the pants themselves. After the riveted blue jean patent that Levi and Jacob 
had expired in 1890, their competitors, of course, started to make riveted clothing too. So they needed an easy way to sort of stand out from all the other riveted jeans. So to that end, in 1936, they added and trademarked that famous red tab device, as it is legally known, and added it to the right back pocket of the 501 jeans, where it is still placed today. In fact, it's apparent that the red tab is probably the most identifiable thing about Levi's. I feel like it's the brown patch on the back with the size. Yeah. But the red tab, too. Right. I would definitely, by far, you see somebody walking around and you happen to see the backside. And you notice the red tab. You know they got Levi's, right? Right Right then and there. Not that we would look at anybody's tushy on purpose. But you notice it. But it happens. You notice it. Sometimes it it just happens. We're not saying, we're just saying. All right, back to this popularity question. So in the 1920s and 1930s, the jeans are getting more commonplace. But then in the 1940s, during World War II, blue jeans were actually declared an essential commodity and were sold only to people who were engaged in defense work. So you had to be working like in a plant that was making airplane parts or tank parts or whatever. Otherwise, you couldn't get jeans. Wow. So you could only buy them if you needed them. Yeah. For not even needed, needed for war effort. Like it it, it was that limited because, you know, times were tough. Yeah. So that I'm sure was difficult on the company, but actually I think it kind of made the jeans more desirable. Yeah, because you couldn't just get them. Right. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) So that happened during the 1940s and then really in the 1950s, uh, jeans took off. Levi's jeans became super popular in the 1950s with None other than the young. It's always the young people. Like yeah. today we blame everything or give credit on everything to the millennials and Gen Z. Then it was the so-called greasers, <laughs> you know, the mods, the rockers, the hippies going through the 50s, 60s, 70s, right? That I mean, were embracing jeans. What can I say? Trendsetters. That's right. That's what we are as the youth. Youngsters. <laughs> so that that's really how it happened. But it was a little by little through the 20s, 30s, and into the wartime in the 40s. And then we really had them hit their stride in the 1950s. And interestingly enough, in the 80s, when fashion was, you know, fashion changes every decade, essentially. There's a style we always associate decade by decade. But the 80s was sort of a throwback fashion-wise to the 50s. So there was a lot of 50s look, modified 50s look in the 80s. Oh. Yeah. Also, just a little side note here. The company was growing so much in that era that in 1965, they actually uh, went international and had offices and factories throughout Europe and Asia, which, by the way, they're still, of course, international. Wow. But, yeah, that started in the 1960s. It's incredible. And that's why now everybody all over the world wears blue jeans now. And Levi's. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. But, yeah. all right, so now I'm going to refer back again one more time because we were talking about the family values, right? What, 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 what all, how much deeper did it go, right? It's a family company. But what what more happens on that front? Yeah, I was talking before about sort of just the family structure of the business. We're doing one of those things on the show that I do with like all of my friends right now, which is we have like a million conversation (laughs) threads going and we just have to pull the right one to keep the story going. So this particular thread, what I was referring to is, you know, not necessarily the family structure now, but just the values of the company that really came internally from the values of one man, Levi Strauss. And so I don't know for sure that there's a correlation between a family business and sort of ethics and values. I mean, certainly not all family businesses are ethical. I mean, you know, (laughs) uh, we know that. But I think a lot of it had to do with the family being there and staying true to that legacy of Levi Strauss. Because remember, all the way back in 1897, Levi Strauss among other things, provided the funds for 28 scholarships at Berkeley. Uh, He was a huge philanthropist. He was a contributor to a variety of different charities back then, and he sort of passed that along to the family members. Even the advent of Ladies Levi's in 1934 sort of showed their forward-thinkingness, their progressiveness. They were championing women and women's ability to do men's work so to speak. You need, you're going to do men's work. You need men's pants. We believe you can do it. So we're going to make you a version of these pants. And of course, during World War II, we were talking about the fact that the pants were limited and you couldn't get them. But Mm -hmm. also during World War II, the company hired African-American sewing machine operators and laborers in their factories. Obviously, that was way before integration. I mean, it was the 40s. That's a big deal then. We still had a segregated military. Yeah, right. And so uh, they had employees that resisted that. Some employees quit over that, but they did not back down. They they believed that bringing, you know, all people together was important, and they did it. 
I think that's one thing we see a little bit of, though, right? When a company sticks to values, even sometimes in the face of losing profits, losing, you know, they come out on the other side better for it. Yeah, absolutely. So in the 1950s, kind of along that same line, Levi's actually removed segregation of their workers long before the laws required it. In fact, in the 1960s, I think you found this story. In the 1960s, um, there was a story about a segregated factory in Virginia, right? Right. So Levi's, obviously, as the spread of jeans started to move much more easterly, they figured, hey, we've got a lot of places on the West Coast. We need some factories and whatnot on the East Coast for, you know, distribution senses. So they looked at a place, a little town called Blackstone, Virginia. They had almost gotten to, like, signing on the dotted line to open a factory. And the people of the city said, oh, by the way, it's going to be a segregated factory, right? And Levi Strauss and company went, uh... No. Long story short, they refused to open the factory until the city finally caved and said, okay, fine, you can have an unsegregated factory in our city. And it was one of the first ones in the whole country to be unsegregated in a segregated state. Yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty amazing. And I have to say, they sort of continued that tradition on a lot of fronts. So they were sort of racially um, ahead of the curve in terms of, uh, you know, integrating people. They were um, very early on sort of focused on the rights of LGBTQ folks, uh, starting with, and I don't don't know if I want to say starting with, but in 1982, uh, just as the AIDS crisis was really becoming a thing, they, uh, you know, they were doing donation matches on that front. In 1992, they were the first, the first Fortune 500 company to extend health benefits to unmarried domestic partners. Um, they were just, and, and by the way, they still continue that tradition. They're very involved in pride now, and and they're very progressive in their beliefs. They've made some anti-Trump donations. Like, they're not shy about who they are yeah. and who their values are as a company. And it's interesting because I feel like people of all stripes wear Levi's, and all political stripes, I mean, right. even. And they don't even, I think they probably just don't realize <laughs> that the company's as progressive as it is. Right, that kind of seems to be the trend with Levi's, right? They're very solid about what they stand for, but they're not going to throw it out there. They're not going to publicize it like crazy. They're just going to do the right thing. Right, they're not flashy about it. Yeah. Uh, they just do it. On another front, uh, they also, I love this story, 1991, they were the first multinational apparel company to launch a code of conduct for all of their factories and licensees worldwide that had ethical standards, legal and environmental requirements, required a certain amount of community involvement. They added standards to address child and forced labor, disciplinary rules, working hours, wages. I mean, they really said, look, this is how... We operate. We don't care what country it's in. Wow. Which is like, whoa. Yeah, that is unfortunately the exception. Yeah. Most companies go, hey, we're going to send it there and uh, you just do how you do in place. Right. We're going to, we we expect to pay less for labor and we're just going to like turn a blind eye. Right. right? So they were, again, uh, I believe the first multinational apparel company to do that. So they were always true to those kinds of company values. And I do think that has made them who they are and given them somewhat of the staying power that they've had even through difficult times. So getting back to our timeline, the 1980s saw more competition for Levi's as designer jeans became a thing. They took some hits for sure, but I think we all know they survived because you probably have a pair of Levi's in your closet right now or just got finished seeing a Levi's commercial on television. (laughs) So they survived, but how'd they do it? We'll talk about it right after this. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. 
Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. While Levi's were the staple of the 60s and 70s, 1979 was the first year that the designer jeans sales really took off. That year, Gloria Vanderbilt sold 6 million pairs of jeans, only to be eclipsed the following year by Calvin Klein and his racy TV ad starring a sexified 15-year-old Brooke Shields. 15? Yeah, and they were like super sexy and super controversial. Okay. But they sold, they worked, and Calvin Klein went on to sell 15 million pairs of jeans in 1981. That ushers in the whole 1980s era of, you know, the material girl, as Madonna (laughs) called it. And it made Levi's less of a popular choice, at least for women. The guys, I think, were still buying Levi's uh, pretty consistently. But, you know, if half the market goes away or slows way down, that's problematic. feel it. Yeah. So the uh, the competition and ensuing financial difficulties causes Levi's to actually close around 60 of its manufacturing plants around the world during the 1980s. Now, it's worth noting that in 1971, Levi Strauss and company had gone public, but family members, of course, were still on board and they were still keeping watch. And in 1985, in the midst of these tough times, the descendants of Levi Strauss, the family, the nephews, the great-nephews, the son-in-laws and whoever's, recaptured ownership of the company, taking it private again and keeping it that way for the next 34 years. So they took it off the public market, but that really didn't solve all the financial woes they had, did it? No. I mean, you know, what that does, I think, and, you know, you see companies uh, often trying to make the decision about whether or not to do that. Uh, one of the things, of course, it does is it takes the company out of not only the public market, but the public eye. Mm. So they're no longer having to show all of their numbers to everyone. Um, and they also aren't just working to that quarterly report trying to appease shareholders. So they can uh, invest in a better way for long-term growth or regrowth in this case. So I think that's uh, a lot of the reason why that happened for this company. And one of the ways that they uh, worked their way back was was actually something I really believe in, which is knowing your customer. They very much knew who their customer was. They realized that at that moment in history, uh, women, certainly women looking to be highly fashionable, weren't turning to Levi's. They did try to put some Levi's out that were in the mold of the designer jeans with the acid washes and the tighter fits and those kinds of things. But they also decided to focus in on that core group that were still buying their clothes, men. In particular, weirdly, working men. Mm-hmm. And I say it with a shrug in my voice because <laughs> they sort of went back to their roots and made working pants for modern working men in the form of dockers. Oh, okay. All right. That makes some sense, though, right? Because when I think of dockers as a guy, I think of like mechanic pants right. or plumber pants, and, something like that. Well, I think of like, Just like your average... Now, see, things have already changed since you got into the workplace, but things were just starting to get more casual then. Like, people were wearing suits to work. Right. And then all of a sudden, like, khakis and a button-down sort of became okay for men. And that's the dockers that I sort of picture. Uh. Like, that, you know, that that like working guy, but now he's an office worker. (laughs) So they're not like, you know, hardy pants with rivets now. They're sort of like you know, a more comfortable, casual pair of work pants, of dressy work pants, except less less dressy, right? Um, and so, in fact, Dockers, as we know, is still a brand and did very well. 
And it actually sort of helped usher in this whole era that we're in now of dressing casual at work. Kind of like the casual Friday started by Dockers. Yeah, because I think, I mean, look, I think chinos or whatever existed before that, but they were not as commonplace. And, you know, this was like now a a popularized, readily available um, way to sort of still not be in your casual clothes, but have this in between, this business casual that we now talk about. So it was almost kind of like the clothes that you wear at work, and then when you get home, you leave them on. Because they're so comfortable. Yeah. And you can wear them at work and home. Either one's fine. There you go. All right. Dockers. So Dockers, uh, yeah, helped really grow the company back. And they did some other things as well. But that was one of the things that helped them sort of come back from the tough time in the 80s and grow through and into the mid-1990s. The trend towards dressing casual at work was not only good for Docker sales, but if you think about it, as we got more and more casual at work, it also ended up being good for the sale of Levi's denim also. Yeah, because you could wear your jeans to work. Totally. And so now, a recent survey says that more than 52% of the country wear jeans four or more days a week. Not surprising, honestly. As much as you see blue jeans around, come, come on, we see blue jeans where we work. Every almost day. Almost every day. Yeah. 22% of the people uh, surveyed, I think this was just a couple of years ago, wear jeans every single day. Wow. Hopefully not the same pair of jeans. Yeah, ew. Gross. Uh, For all intents and purposes, that basically brings us up to modern times. Okay. Now, but Dana, didn't you mention earlier in the show that Levi's actually spent a whole lot of time in court? I did. Thank you for keeping me on track, New Guy Nick. I try. You're the best. (laughs) Uh, I did. And here's the deal. In a few circumstances, they were defending themselves in court, but a lot of the times they were the ones instigating going to court. So in the defense of themselves, there were a couple of examples. In 1978, for example, uh, the state of California filed an antitrust violation lawsuit against them and won a settlement of $4 million. And another one was 1997, so many years later. But this one was more um, personal, if you will, because five of their own garment workers sued them, alleging that they retaliated against those workers for filing costly job-related injury claims. And uh, once again, Levi Strauss lost that battle and had to pay out $10.6 million in that case. So Ouch. those were a couple of the times they were in court defending themselves. And I feel like all big companies end up in court in that way. Not in that way, particularly, but in some way or other, because right. that's just part and parcel for being a big company. Yeah. Um, but most of the time that Levi spent in court was spent suing their competitors for infringing on their trademarks. In fact, Levi Strauss leads the apparel industry in trademark infringement cases, filing nearly 100 lawsuits against its competitors just since 2001. Oh, my gosh. That's a lot of legal costs. I was going to say, they have a very busy legal department. (laughs) Most cases center on some form of an imitation of that Levi's back pocket double arch stitching pattern. So I think most of the companies are smart enough not to try the red tab. Yeah, that's very uh, iconically them. Right. But the double stitching and or something close to it apparently has been uh, tried and tried and tried again by many of the competitors who have been sued and sued and sued again. For the record, uh, Levi Strauss and Company has won many of the cases they have filed, uh, including cases against uh, Guess, more than one, uh, also cases against Polo Ralph Lauren, Esprit, uh, and Lucky Brand Jeans, all wow. sued and lost. Yeah. So, um, so, you know, kind of an interesting way to spend your time when you're an iconic company, but I guess you kind of have to do it. It is kind of weird to think about them being in court for something like the stitching all that often, though, right? Because, like, all jeans are kind of the same. I know. I have to say it feels weird to me, too, because I feel like I would just look at the tag and see if they were Levi's and I wouldn't buy them if they weren't. You know, if I wanted Levi's, I'd buy Levi's like. Yeah, you look for them. Right. I wouldn't buy, like, guests thinking it was Levi's and get mm. confused. Like, I don't see that really happening. But I think um, that is just sort of, unfortunately, the way our intellectual property laws are. And I am certainly not an intellectual property lawyer. <laughs> but my understanding is if you don't legally defend your trademark, then you can sort of lose the right. So you have to do it. So right. they will literally put people out searching to make sure nobody's even coming close I know companies like McDonald's do the same thing. If anybody even looks like they have golden arches, they're in court. Absolutely. You've heard that before. The first time you let it slide, 
then they'll use that you let it slide this time against you forever. That's right. So that's actually just sort of part of the way huh. the, the law is. But there you go. They spend a lot uh, of time in court on those kinds of things. So thank you for reminding me. Uh, in any case, after weathering that downturn in the 1980s, Levi's was doing well, as we said, by the 1990s, where in and around the mid-90s, they hit a peak of $7 billion in annual net sales. Yeah, pretty impressive. And then, you know, over the last three decades, they've had some more ups and downs. Uh, but they did see a, a pretty significant comeback of late, which led them to return to the public market. And they actually debuted their stock on the New York Stock Exchange under the ticker Levi, L-E-V-I, just in March of 2019. Pretty lucky they got that ticker that no one had tried to snag that one from them, for <laughs> <Totally>. sure. <laughs> it is also, right, the stock is holding right about where it first came onto the market at. So it's not doing bad. And they're yeah. valued at over $6.5 billion right now. Yeah, it's not bad. I mean, <laughs> they, you know, the stock had a, like, you know, it bounced up like a lot of stocks do and then sort of kind of leveled off where it started, which is pretty common, I think, in year one. In any case, that plus their long history gives me enough reason right there to say that this iconic brand is here to stay. But it's really the way we consumers see the brand that matters in terms of iconicness. Did I just make up a word? I think you did. It's going to stick. All right. We're, we're going to use it. Hey, we could have called this podcast Iconicness <laughs> instead of Bizography. Too late. In any case, we, the consumers, love Levi's. Levi's in 2018 had a net favorability score of 72, which sounds kind of like a C and not an A+. But in truth, it's actually 20% higher than its closest denim competitors. Wow. Yeah. Wow, that's really good. Yeah. But now, don't you also think not only, you know, do we look at them so iconically as, as a good company, but don't you think it's also because Levi's are totally woven into just pop culture in general is why they're so iconic? Oh, yeah. I mean, Levi's have been worn by everyone from James Dean to Marlon Brando to Marilyn Monroe. Even Albert Einstein had a leather jacket made by Levi's. Do you know Levi's has a vintage clothing department that remade that jacket that oh. Albert Einstein wore because they bought it from auction. The company did. They used it to design the new jacket. They made 500 limited edition versions that not only were identical in the way they looked, they also replicated the smell of uh, Albert Einstein's jacket. Like worn? Like they like armpits? Well, so apparently, no. Apparently he like he liked his tobacco and he had, you know, the manuscripts, the sitting in papers all day. So they they replicated the smell. And when you bought the jacket, it came with a bottle of the smell. Oh, de Albert. <laughs> I don't think it's what it's called, what they called, but they didn't ask you. They should have asked you. That would have been great. Did you also know? I've got an interesting story I have to share real fast. Bing Crosby, right? Everyone knows Bing Crosby, Christmas music guy, big popular singer back in the day. In the 50s, he went to Canada and he was going to walk into a fancy Canadian hotel like dine, uh, restaurant and he had a pair of Levi's and a Levi's denim jacket on and they refused to let him in. So when that news got back to Levi Strauss, they came up with the Canadian tuxedo. And it was literally a tuxedo made completely out of denim. Huh. And the next time Bing Crosby had a TV appearance, he wore it. Let's be fair. Look it up. It's hideous. That's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny because I always thought the term Canadian tuxedo was more of like, you know, us making fun of the Canadians for not knowing how to dress up. Right. It was more us making fun of them because... <laughs> They shunned our blue jeans. They didn't know. How dare they? Unbelievable. <laughs> That's actually kind of a cool story. Who knew? So between all of the um, intersections with pop culture, the consumer love of the brand, the core values of the company, I just don't think Levi's is going anywhere. I give Levi Strauss and Company two thumbs up on its chances to continue on as a beloved and iconic brand. What do you think? Ab. Absolutely. There will be red tabs on butts for decades to come. So that's four thumbs up from the Bizography team. That's our show. See you next time. Bizography is produced by the iHeart Podcast Network. I'm your host, Dana Barrett. My co-host is Nick Bean. Our producer is Tari Harrison. And our executive producer is Jonathan Strickland. Have questions? Want to give us feedback or have a company you'd like us to cover? Email us at info at bizography.show. Or contact us on social. I'm at the Dana Barrett on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or just search for me on LinkedIn. Thanks for your support.
Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store.